This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, it's been a nerve-wracking week here in the U.S. as government officials scramble to contain the coronavirus spread while trying to calm nervous Americans. There's also been a stunning turnaround in the Democratic primary as the contest for the nomination is now a two-man race. Party moderates breathed a collective sigh of relief last week after former Vice President Joe Biden scored big wins on Super Tuesday. What a difference a week makes! With almost all of his serious competitors dropping out and jumping on the Biden bandwagon, it's now down to a two-man race. At the end of the day, I'd rather have the support of organizations that represent millions of working class people, low income people, than the support of establishment politicians. We'll talk about the road ahead for both candidates. But first, a look at the struggle to contain the coronavirus in the U.S. and around the world. Can the Trump administration calm fears and anxiety following a series of missteps and conflicting messages? And are we prepared for widespread cases of the highly contagious virus? Anybody that needs a test gets a test. We, they're there. They have the test. And the tests are beautiful. Anybody that needs a test gets a test. Washington state is dealing with more than 100 cases of coronavirus, the most in the country. We'll ask Governor Jay Inslee if he's getting enough help from the federal government. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy will also be here, as well as Surgeon General Jerome Adams and former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Plus, as some European countries see a dramatic spike in the number of coronavirus cases this weekend, we'll have a report from Italy, where 16 million Italian citizens are quarantined. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning. Welcome to Face the Nation. We begin again this morning with the latest on the coronavirus, as the situation both here and around the world has gotten even more serious. There are now 460 U.S. cases of COVID-19, commonly referred to as the coronavirus, in 33 states and here in the District of Columbia. 19 people have died, 16 of them in the state of Washington. The governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, joins us this morning from Seattle. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning. Good morning. You've got more than 100 cases in your state. Starbucks reported uh, one of them in downtown Seattle just a few days ago. Four nursing homes now affected. Why haven't you been able to contain the virus? Well, look, this is a challenging thing that the whole world is now recognizing. And what we're doing here is uh, the things I think our state should be doing. We're mourning our losses, which have been significant. Uh, we are acting based on science and a, and a commitment uh, for all of us to be soldiers in this battle. And we're, we are doing that. We're having citizens who are doing what they need to do 
which is uh, we're doing uh, uh, teleworking so that we can reduce people being exposed. People are staying home from work uh, when they are ill. And all uh, systems of government, I think, are working as diligently as possible to be very aggressive against this uh, potentially fatal disease. So those are the things that are going on, but we should not minimize the task before us, giving the transmission Every single social contact between humans anywhere in the world today is an, a potential exposure. So we now are making scientific decisions about making mm -hmm. sure we get as much testing as possible, making sure we restock our medical supply chain, and making sure that we make good decisions about uh, minimizing those social contacts, which we're doing in the state of Washington. This is supposed to be state-led. Do you have all the support from the federal government that you need? Well, certainly there were troubles at the beginning of this with the testing protocols. But right now, uh, I believe the agencies of the federal government are being very diligent in helping our state. Uh, they are restocking our stockpile of protective equipment and medical supplies. We've had hundreds of thousands of new uh, pieces of supply that have come in in the last uh, couple of days. That's been very helpful. We need the federal government to really accelerate the production of these the ability to do these tests, and we will need the federal government to certify a new system of providing these tests to really ramp up the capability of the independent labs, which ultimately we're going to need. We've, we, I'm very glad we started our testing protocol very early to develop our own state capacity. It's gone up by about 20-fold in the last several weeks. But, but to do nationally what we need, we really need to get the private sector labs, and we need the federal government to help in that regard. I think they are moving in that direction. And we need the federal government to help really uh, vitalize and mobilize our manufacturing capacity to do uh, protective equipment. And yeah. uh, we need to do what we did in World War II to mobilize that supply chain. You uh, are at the epicenter of this. I mean, your state is in particular. You saw the dramatic mm -hmm. actions taken in Italy with quarantining a quarter of the country. China obviously is an authoritarian state, so it can do things uh, democracies wouldn't. But, I mean, you are in the middle of major industry in a big city of Seattle. Have you contemplating, <clears throat> contemplated shutting it down? Well, we don't use that kind of language, but we certainly are contemplating uh, requirements for what we call uh, social distancing in the public health realm. But nothing like what Italy has just done overnight? We are contemplating, in fact, I'm going to a meeting in about an hour about this subject right now. We are looking at extending what are voluntary decisions right now. And we've asked uh, a whole host of communities to consider whether you really need to have your events right now. And they are being canceled. Uh, uh, Comic-Con's been postponed. We have a number of school closures. We are contemplating some next steps particularly to protect our vulnerable pro uh, populations in our nursing homes and like. And we are looking to determine whether mandatory measures are required. So far, the public is responding very well uh, by uh, making sure that they listen to public health requests. Uh, uh, people are now staying home when they're sick. They have telecommuted and teleworked very, very effectively. And so that's working. But we may have to go to the next step. And we are, uh, we are thinking about those seriously uh, to get ahead of this curve. The difficult decisions, The I next think, step means quarantine? Public, not necessarily quarantine, but reducing the number of social activities that are going on. And we need to make decisions about that looking forward, looking what the modeling suggests the infection rate will be going forward. And this will be, uh, or could be, hard for the public yeah. because they may not have seen the full uh, wave yet. We need to anticipate that wave, get ahead of it. Okay. We are thinking about uh, stronger measures right now. Your local paper, the Seattle Times, um, reports that even before this outbreak of the virus, your local health systems were pretty taxed. In fact, uh, understaffed, underfunded, and they pin some blame on you as governor mm -hmm. for declining requests for more public health network funding. Do you shoulder some of the blame here? Well, look, our, our national public health system uh, nationally could always have used additional help. 
But we've had a lot of things to do in the state of Washington, including financing our schools. We were on a constitutional obligation to generate about $8 billion for our schools, and we've done that successfully. Our public health system has remained stable while I have been governor. But look, all of us can say uh, uh, generating more support for public health nationwide, uh, we're going to look forward to those issues. I'm pleased that my legislature followed my lead and has now appropriated $100 million to attack this problem. We're pleased that Congress has acted. And we're pleased that the federal government is helping us right now. We had a good meeting with Vice President Pence here, mm -hmm. and his agencies now are responding to our, our requests. Okay. So uh, and, and so far, we've had enough tests so far so I that wanna, everyone I want to ask uh, you about that because has been ordered it has it. Well, that's good news. Um, I want to ask you about the vice right. president's <laughs> visit because uh, he praised mm -hmm. your action. You were very complimentary just <clears throat> now to him. But then the president of the United States had this to say on Friday. So I told Mike not to be complimentary of the governor because that governor is a snake. Okay, uh, Inslee. Let me just tell you, we have a lot of problems with the governor. Are politics com complicating any part of this? Well, we're, I, I really don't care too much what Donald Trump thinks of me, and we just kind of ignore that. It's background noise because we really need to work together, Republicans and Democrats. This is a national crisis. We are doing that effectively, as I've indicated. I've had good meetings with the agency directors. I think that uh, yeah. the vice president has been helpful in this regard. So, look, we're focusing on people's health, not on, on political gamesmanship right now, and that's what we need to do. And okay. I feel good about uh, those efforts. All right, Governor Inslee, good luck to you. You bet. As the U.S. steps up efforts to contain the virus, we want to take a look at what's happening elsewhere in the world. Cases in France and Italy substantially increased this weekend, with the number of people diagnosed in France escalating significantly. And Italy reported more than 1,200 new cases in the last 24 hours. The increase prompted the Italian government to take dramatic new quarantine measures. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett reports from Rome. It's a surreal scene here at St. Peter's Square. Even Pope Francis just said it seems a little bit strange. Normally people would be watching his address from his apartment window. Instead, they're seeing the Sunday prayer being held on these wide screens. It's all an effort to keep crowd numbers down here. As we learned overnight, that's just the beginning. It is by far the most dramatic measure yet in the race against the virus. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte declaring the forced lockdown of a quarter of the country's population. Nationwide, museums, movie theaters, sporting events shut down, weddings and funerals banned. The contagion is not only accelerating, it's now everywhere. The really scary part is not knowing. You can pick it up from something you touch or someone you might meet. And when people are really worried, they come here. This is Italy's number one hospital for infectious diseases. And behind me, you might be able to make out those silver tents, which have been set up as a sort of triage area. They're all over Italy to stop those who may be carrying the virus from infecting the rest of the hospital. And just take a look at the Trevi Fountain this morning. Normally, this place would be heaving with tourists. But hotel cancellations are up by 90% in some areas. That's the worst in the world. Globally, cases have now soared to 105,000. South Korea has surpassed 7,000. Countries across Asia and Europe are all reporting a surge in new cases. And they'll be seeing Italy as a glimpse of the future. The media has been criticized for being alarmist, but the media didn't just quarantine around 16 million people. A couple weeks ago, there were maybe two dozen cases here. Now, there are nearly 6,000. This is real. Margaret? Our Charlie Daggett reporting from Rome. One of the nation's top experts in infectious diseases is Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. He sat with CBS News chief medical correspondent, Dr. John LaPook, for tonight's 60 Minutes. Two points that he made we thought were important for our viewers. Let's take a look. Early on, the administration was criticized for downplaying the outbreak. On February 2nd, President Trump said, we pretty much shut it down coming from China. What's the danger of minimizing the risk of an infectious disease outbreak? Well, I mean, the danger of minimization on, on in, in any arena of, of infectious disease and outbreak is that you might get people to be complacent, number one. 
number two, uh, when bad things happen, your credibility is lost because you've downplayed something. In China, millions are quarantined. Is that where we're headed here in the United States? I don't imagine that the degree uh, of the draconian nature of what the Chinese did would ever be either feasible, applicable, doable, or whatever you want to call it in the United States. I don't think you could do that. The idea of social distancing, I mean, obviously that's something that will be seriously considered depending upon where we are in a particular region of the country. More of John LaPook's interview with Dr. Fauci will air tonight on 60 Minutes. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back now with Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, who is on the Senate committee that oversees health care. Connecticut is one of the 33 states with confirmed cases of coronavirus. Senator, it's good to have you here this morning. And I'm sorry to hear about what's happening in my home state uh, of Connecticut. How many cases do you think there are right now? There are two that have been reported. Oh, listen, I imagine we have hundreds, if not thousands, of cases in my state. I think we have no concept of the scope of this epidemic yet because we have not been able to test. Uh, And the fact of the matter is we can't make good judgments uh, about the measures we should be taking in Seattle or in Danbury or Hartford unless we are able to do these tests. And what is unforgivable is that the administration didn't see this coming uh, and didn't put the resources in early to make sure that everybody had these tests available. But we are likely going to have to take much stronger measures as time goes on, but nobody understands where the epidemic is the worst until we get tests widely deployed. Now, the administration says there are tests in the pipeline. They said about a million were sent out for delivery arrival on Friday. Are you seeing that in Connecticut? Uh, We are not seeing that in Connecticut. We now have private lab capacity to do tests, but uh, our understanding is that we are nowhere near uh, that number that was proffered by the administration last year of a million. Uh, We are doing a lot more screening in our state, but we do not have the ability to give a test to everyone who wants one, as the president said was the case uh, on Friday afternoon. And that is incredibly concerning. Given the fact that we saw this epidemic coming, we could have made a decision back in January or February to accept the WHO test that was available to us uh, or start uh, putting serious resources into developing our own tests. The administration did neither. And they did neither, Margaret, because this precedent has created a culture of misinformation in which no one wants to give him bad news. And that created a disincentive in the White House and in the administration to come up with an early test. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who we just heard from uh, and is going to be on 60 Minutes, said the risk to the average American of contracting the virus is low. And even if they contract it, the risk of a serious outcome is low. So is the anxiety outpacing reality? Well, I I think that is right, that for each individual American, the risk is still low. But if we do get into a situation where we are taking measures on a city-by-city or state-by-state basis in which there are massive school closures, um, all of a sudden the effect on the average American is very high. Uh, And we are simply not ready um, to be able to support families if schools are closed for two weeks or three weeks in certain municipalities or certain states. And we could have been doing that planning uh, well before now. You've been briefed because you sit on this committee. Uh, Should we be expecting school closures around the country? So I think we need to be prepared for school closures and business closures. And we need to understand that no city is going to take those measures unless there is some assistance from the federal government. So what we should be talking about right now are things like paid sick leave, um, putting the federal government in a position to be able to assist workers if they have to stay home to take care of a sick child or to quarantine themselves. Instead, we're talking about industry bailouts and tax cuts. Uh, We should be talking about assistance for average Americans, and that's not a conversation that's happening. But that, how much of that is 
in the, the court of the state governments. I mean, we're talking about the federal government uh, needing to respond here, but it's governors like Governor Inslee who are on the front lines needing to react first. Right, and listen, the first uh, wave of federal assistance to states will help. Um, the states now have some additional resources to stand up um, more response efforts. Um, but again, that money came way too late. We were begging the administration for an emergency supplemental back in February, and they refused to give it. They refused to come to Congress to ask for that money. And I'm glad Congress came to the rescue last week, but that money could have been out the door a lot earlier. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had really sharp words for the Chinese this week, and he said he basically put some blame on them for not sharing information earlier, and he indicated that is inhibiting the, the response with a vaccine. Has, is that real? Is that what's affecting the U.S. response? Well, the Chinese early on were not sharing information, so that is correct. They have been much more forthcoming uh, since then. Um, but what is inhibiting our response in the United States is, in part, a president who is lying to the American people, who's telling them that a vaccine is a couple months away, who's telling everybody that it can get tested if they want. Um, if we really want to talk about what is going to potentially create panic in this country, it's an administration that's just not being straight with the American public about the extent of uh, this epidemic and the real-life consequences that could be uh, put upon Americans. Uh, the, the administration says that that was just a issue with phrasing on part of the president there, but we'll talk to the Surgeon General uh, ahead on the program. I want to ask you about Afghanistan. Uh, another extraordinary week. Uh, president Trump had a 35-minute phone call with one of the founding members of the Taliban. Um, they're responsible for the death of thousands of Americans. They harbored al-Qaeda. Here's what he said about that call. Other presidents have tried, and they have been unable to get any kind of an agreement. Uh, the relationship is very good that I have with the mullah. The relationship is very good with the mullah. That's an extraordinary statement. You've read the classified parts of this agreement. You can't share the details. But is he, is he essentially right? He got a deal the last administration couldn't. Is this a good one? So I don't think this is a good deal with the Taliban. Uh, he had made promises that there wouldn't be prisoner releases. There are reportedly massive prisoner releases as a requirement of this deal. May at, not happen. At the, right, may not happen. At the same time, though, um, I have generally been supportive of the idea of sitting down and trying to negotiate an agreement with the Taliban in which they agree uh, to never again harbor terrorists that may attack the United States in exchange for a phased U.S. withdrawal. What we are doing today is not working. Another 20 years of U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan is not the answer. So I think it was inevitable that the deal this president cut was not going to be as good uh, as a deal that the Obama administration could have cut, but I don't know what the alternative was to having these conversations. Senator Murphy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And good luck to you. We will be right back with the Surgeon General for an update on the government's efforts to contain the virus. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Joining us now is the Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams. He is part of the administration's Coronavirus Task Force and the Trump administration's representative on our broadcast today. Dr. Adams, good morning to you. Good morning. I want to ask you about this cruise ship, Princess Cruises. Uh, the operator of that ship and the state of California have now announced some of the plans for the passengers. They're going to dock in Oakland tomorrow at a non-commercial port. The president said on Friday that people he, he would rather people not be let off the ship. The vice president said they would. The state of California says they would. Can you clarify, what is happening to the thousands of people on board? Well, we'll quickly get into the cruise ships, but what I want the American people to know is that the novel coronavirus is a family, comes from a family of viruses, including the cold, including SARS and MERS, which we've successfully navigated uh, in the past, and that most people who get the coronavirus are going to have a mild disease. Very few will actually need to be hospitalized. So, so for those people who are actually infected in this hotspot on this cruise ship, are they be 
being released into the public? Well, what we're, what we're prioritizing when we uh, look at the cruise ship situation is, number one, making sure people who are sick on the cruise ship get the medical care that they need, that they're appropriately evacuated. And we've sent CDC teams onto the ship. We've sent uh, uh, personal protective equipment onto the ship. We're making sure, number two, that we can get people off the ship as quickly and as safely as possible. But we're working with the Department of Defense, Coast Guard, and the local authorities to make sure we have a safe place to take these people to because so we does, don't want to endanger the local community. Does that mean that people who are infected are going to go to military bases all around the country? Uh, well, the plans are still being uh, developed, but I want people to know that we are not going to put infected people into communities. Infected people will be quarantined, will be isolated appropriately so that we can make sure we're not putting communities at risk. Okay, because uh, the governor of Georgia has said 34 Georgians and additional Americans will be going to an air base. You're saying none of those people will be infected. Well, there's a difference between quarantine and isolation. Isolation is where you put people who actually have tested positive. Quarantine is where you put people who've been exposed. We may be quarantining people in different places across the country while we watch them for 14 days to make sure they don't develop symptoms. But no one who's tested positive for coronavirus or who has symptoms will be put in a position where they can expose other people. Okay. We're going to take a break and talk more on the other side of it, so stay with us, doctor. Thank you. There's a lot more Face the Nation coming your way. We'll be right back with the Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, plus our political panel and the former head of the Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to pick up where we left off with the Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams. Um, and I just want to just button up where we left off yes. on the matter of the cruise ship. If someone is exposed um, and testing positive, will they be kept in the state of California? Uh, some of those, well, we're still working out where we can best put those folks. You have to understand, these are four. But they dock tomorrow. These are four, yes, and that plan is being developed right now. There are four, oh, almost 4,000 people on that cruise ship. Uh, we're working with the Department of Defense. The most important thing for American people to know is that folks who test positive will be kept isolated so that they cannot expose other people. We don't want to okay. put communities at risk. But people who do test positive could be dispersed to military bases around the country? Well, uh, we're going to try to keep them as contained as possible, but we're going to make sure, uh, and as close as possible, but we're going to make sure they're in a place that we feel we can uh, keep them from exposing the rest of the community. And we should expect a decision on that by, what, the 4 p.m. meeting that you have at the White House every day? Well, exactly. Uh, and again, I would refer you to uh, Ambassador Burks for more information on that. Uh, we want to make sure the American people know that we're prioritizing the health of the people on that ship, getting them off the ship as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, not exposing the community. I want to ask you about, I mean, it seems that nursing homes in particular are very vulnerable. Older mm -hmm. people are being advised, as you heard from Dr. Fauci there, to reconsider putting themselves in certain circumstances. Would you tell someone over the age of, what, 55, 60? I mean, what's the age group that you're saying should not get on a plane or get on a cruise ship? Well, great question. And we're, we've got new data emerging. We know that the average age of people who are dying from coronavirus is 80 plus. We know that the average age of people who are needing medical care and advanced medical care is 60 plus. And so what we're telling folks is that if you're in an at-risk group, meaning you're elderly and or you have comorbidities, heart disease, lung disease, you're immunosuppressed for whatever reason, that you should be taking extra precautions not to put yourself in a situation where you may be exposed. What if you're pregnant? Uh, again, that if you're pregnant, I would advise taking extra precautions. But that said, no one under the age of 30 has died of the coronavirus in, uh, in South Korea. No one under the age of 50 has died of coronavirus in Japan. There's something about being younger that is protective, but if you are in one of those higher-risk groups, we suggest you avoid crowded spaces. We suggest you avoid uh, 
potentially going on a cruise or taking a long-haul flight because uh, most people are going to be fine, but we want those folks who we know are at higher risk for complications to protect themselves. But New York State declared an emergency, and they have said uh, you can't have visitors until further notice. I mean, should other states be doing this? Would you advise other states to do this? Well, that's one of the reasons the vice president and I have been going around the country. We've spoken with three, I've spoken with three governors in the past week saying, you need to be having these conversations right now. And I would encourage folks to go to cdc.gov. There is specific guidance for audiences, businesses, schools. I met with the National Association of Evangelicals, faith leaders. We want them to be thinking now about what their triggers would be. But the risk is going to be different in different places. What you're going to do in Seattle is going to be different than what you're going to do in Jackson, Mississippi, for instance. So you've been a state health commissioner. In fact, you were one under then-governor. Mike Pence. We dealt out with in Ebola, of, we dealt with Zika. And yes. the largest HIV outbreak uh, from intravenous drug use. Yes. Um, and some point to that fact, in fact, it was a criticism from Senator Murphy here that this administration has been slow to respond to this virus. Given that Vice President Pence and you, same team, different situation. How do you respond to that, that there was a slow response then, there's a slow response now? Well, uh, I'd rather talk about coronavirus, but it's important for folks to know that... But the speed of the response specifically is what he was criticizing you for, for not having kits in place, for not laying the ground. I appreciate the question. Syringe service programs, which folks really are looking at as as stemming the tide of HIV transmission in Indiana, were illegal when Governor Pence took office. He was talking about testing kits for coronavirus. Uh, Well, okay. Not being ordered. and And I was referring to the HIV situation. Governor Pence showed leadership in that situation, uh, syringe service programs were illegal when he came in. They were legal when he left. He actually was one of the few uh, governors from a red state that actually expanded access to care, which helped in that response. And so we have the right person in charge uh, of this response right now. And it's a recommendation of the uh, uh, panel that that Susan Brooks led in Congress in 2015 that the vice president lead just such a response. Now, as far as the coronavirus is concerned, we've been leaning into containment. Uh, initially, which is trying to keep the virus from entering the country. We now are seeing community spread, and we're trying to help people understand how to mitigate the impact Containment of didn't spread. work. Now you're looking at mitigation. Well, containment worked to slow the introduction of the virus and give people time to prepare. And now we know that communities need to look at how we deal with, uh, with uh, community spread and things such as social distancing, not having large gatherings, pulling down events. Those are conversations that communities need to be having right now. Thank you very much, doctor, for coming and telling us. Thank you, and stay safe by washing your hands, by covering your cough, by staying home if you're sick. Masks do not work for the general public in preventing them from getting coronavirus. Right, and elbow bumps. Thank you very much. Thank you. Doctor, we'll be right back with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Joining us now is former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good to have you back on the program. Thanks a lot. I want to pick up where we just left off with the Surgeon General who said right there at the end that they are switching strategies. They are no longer looking to contain the virus. They're looking to mitigate it. Does that, mi- does that mean they're acknowledging what they've been doing is not working? Well, we have an epidemic underway here in the United States. There's a very large outbreak in Seattle. That's the one we know about. Probably one in Santa Clara, maybe other parts of the country, other cities. And so we're past the point of containment. We have to implement broad mitigation strategies. The next two weeks are really going to change the complexion in this country. We'll get through this, but it's going to be a hard period. We're looking at two months, probably of difficulty. To give you a basis of comparison, two weeks ago, Italy had nine cases. 95% of all their cases have been diagnosed in the last 10 days. For South Korea, 85% of all their cases have been diagnosed in the last 10 days. We're entering that period right now of rapid acceleration. And the sooner we can implement tough mitigation steps in places where we have outbreaks like Seattle, the, the lower the scope of the epidemic here. Let's talk about mitigation, because when I asked Governor Inslee what he is doing, and I asked him a few ways if he'd consider doing what Italy just did, which is essentially trying to... I mean, they're quarantining a quarter of their population in the most economically vital part of their country. This is a massive decision for them to have made. When I asked him about doing something like that in Washington State, he said, well, they're talking about 
more distancing and more right. measures like that. Is it just that it he, governors like him don't want to say out loud that we may have to do something like what Italy did? Well, I think no state and no city wants to be the first to basically shut down their economy, but that's what's going to need to happen. States and cities are going to have to act in the interest of the national interest right now to prevent a broader epidemic. Shut down their economy? You mean... Close businesses, close large gatherings, close theaters, cancel events. I think we need to think about how do we provide assistance to the people of these cities who are going to be hit by hardship, as well as the localities themselves, to try to give them an incentive to do this. Right now, if, if there's no economic support to do this, you don't want to be the first to go, and I think you're seeing that. This exposes one of the challenges of our federal system, that we leave a lot of authority to state and local officials. And there's, a good, that, there's good reasons why. But in a situation like this, where you want them to act not just in their local interests, but the national interests, I think we need to think about both trying to coerce them, we can't force them, but also try to provide some incentives in terms of support. And we're going to end up with a very big federal bailout package here for, for stricken businesses, individuals, um, cities and states. We're better off doing it up front and giving assistance to get them to do the right things than do it on the back end after we've had a very big epidemic. Are you telling the White House to do these things? You used to work in the administration. I'm still having discussions with people in the administration. I've been saying this publicly for uh, you know weeks now. I think we should try to get ahead of this right now. The president said this morning uh, in a tweet, we have a perfectly coordinated and fine-tuned plan at the White House for our attack on the coronavirus. And he said the news media is doing everything possible to make us look bad. I'm asking you this, not because I'm a member of the media, but because we are trying to suss out what reality is versus anxiety for the public. Is this a perfectly fine-tuned plan? And is what people are hearing on the news, as the president said, just to make him look bad? We have a narrow window of opportunity to implement tough measures to try to push down the scope of the epidemic. What you want to do is you want to put put in place mitigation steps to reduce the peak number of cases you have to get them below the point at which the healthcare system gets exhausted. Because what happened in Wuhan, China, was the healthcare system got exhausted and fatalities rose quickly. What we need right now in terms of a good plan is a systematic approach to what you do in terms of mitigation steps and when cities should be implementing that. And you when, don't see that happening yet? There's no systematic plan for when a city should close schools, when they should tell businesses that they have to telework, when they should close movie theaters and cancel large gatherings. We leave these decisions to local officials, but we really should have a comprehensive plan in terms of recommendations to cities and in some support from the federal government for cities that make that step, make that leap, if you will. So, but just on the anxiety question here, the administration has compared this to the flu. Is that how people should be thinking about this? No, this is not the flu. China didn't shut down their economy because they had a bad flu season. The case fatality rate here is going to be higher all through the age ranges. Um, this is a more severe disease. Now, it's true that, that you don't see the full spectrum of disease that you see with the flu, where some people get a mild disease, some people get a moderate disease, some people get more severe disease. Here you're seeing a, a more binary response. Some people get mild and moderate disease, and some people get very sick. But for the people who get very sick, this could be a very dangerous disease. The case fatality rate is probably going to be about 1%. And it's not just older Americans, as tragic as that is, and we shouldn't dismiss the burden that this is going to place on older Americans. If you look at 40-year-olds, the case fatality rate has been anywhere between 0.2 and 0.4%. So that means as many as 1 in 250 40- to 50-year-olds who get this could die from it. And this data is based on what? This data is based on reporting out of South Korea and China. Remember, when you look at the South Korea data, the case fatality rate in South Korea right now is 06 but the time to death is three to six weeks, and most of the cases were diagnosed in the last 10 days. Time to hospitalization is nine to 12 days. So most of these people in South Korea haven't worked through the severe stage of this, of this disease. The case fatality rate will go up. And I'll, one more point, you have to make a distinction between the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate. We talk in medicine about the case fatality rate. How many people who get the disease will die? Some people are talking about the infection fatality rate. How many people who get the infection will die? That's not what we focus on in medicine because we know that some people get the infection but not be symptomatic. We typically don't count those. We count people who get the disease. And for that, the case fatality rate probably it might not reach 1% in our system, but it might get close to that. It's not 0.1, and that's the seasonal flu. It's not 0.05, and that's a mild flu season. And to get there, you need the adequate number of tests out there and testing to happen. Which we're getting. Which we're getting yeah. there. Uh, all right, thank you Thanks very a lot. much. For your insight, we'll be back in a moment with our political panel. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, 
we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. I will no longer seek to be the 2020 Democratic nominee for president. I am ending my campaign. I am with great enthusiasm going to endorse Joe Biden. I entered the race for president to defeat Donald Trump. And today, I am leaving the race for the same reason. One of the hardest parts of this is all those little girls who are going to have to wait four more years. And to quote former Vice President Biden, you heard him at the top of our broadcast, what a difference a week makes. This has been quite a turnaround for him and this campaign. So we've gathered some of the very best in the business for analysis today. Amy Walter is national editor at Cook Political Report and host of The Takeaway. Dan Balls is chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Joel Payne is a Democratic strategist and a CBS News contributor. And Leslie Sanchez is a CBS News political contributor. Both are very familiar faces to our CBSN viewers. So it's great to have all of you here. Amy, a week ago. I, I, just, I, can't, I can't believe it was just a week ago. Just it feels a week like a, ago. A year and a half ago. And we were talking about whether a single win in South Carolina could Would be, be enough. enough to keep Joe Biden going in this race. Then Tuesday happened. Now we're calling it a two-man race. Right. What drove this turnaround? The most important person in the Democratic primary has always been Donald Trump. And being able to beat Donald Trump was the key issue voters had been telling us for the last two years. They just couldn't quite figure out who the best candidate was to defeat him. I think after Nevada, there was this consensus, especially here in Washington, but even among regular voters, that the candidate who was seen as the most, quote-unquote, quote electable was not Bernie Sanders, but he was on the path to winning the nomination after Nevada. And you put that in combination with Joe Biden's big South Carolina win, thanks in large part to Congressman Jim Clyburn's endorsement, and then to get all of those candidates who dropped out to endorse Joe Biden immediately is really phenomenal. I talked to one Republican who said, well, I guess Democrats are just, they're just more disciplined than we are. We never could have done that in 2016. I said, they're not more disciplined than Republicans. It's that Donald Trump res represents a much more existential threat at least Democrats see it that way, that's what brought them to the table. I don't know if a President Marco Rubio or a President Jeb Bush would have gotten Democrats to do what they did with Joe Biden this week. Dan, what I hear Amy saying is basically Democrats didn't fall in love in the week. They fell in line, the party, yeah, and I, aligned themselves here. I, I think they did, and I, I totally agree with Amy that, that the, the issue was who... Who would they rally around eventually? Because we knew that Senator Sanders had a very loyal base of support. But what we saw in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and to some extent in uh, Nevada, was that he wasn't the overwhelming choice. He was the choice of 25 to 35 percent of the population, of the Democrats. That meant there was a big group that was looking for somebody else. Um, and they were looking for some kind of cue or clue as to what to do. And African-American voters in South Carolina gave them that cue in a very strong way, and that brought everybody together, you know, in a way that no one could have anticipated. You know, Senator Sanders, though, Joel, had been campaigning and on programs just like this one would say time and again that he was unique in being able to bring in young voters, motivated voters to the Democratic Party. But then on Tuesday, he had this to say. Have we been as successful as I would hope in bringing young people in? And the answer is no. We're making some progress. But historically, everybody knows that young people do not vote in the kind of numbers that older people vote in. He says he didn't get the youth vote the way he expected. Black voters didn't vote his way. Uh, Latino voters, though, in certain states did stick with Bernie Sanders. They, they did. It's not the coalition that you have to build to win in the Democratic primary this time. It's funny. We were told to expect a revolution. You know, Bernie Sanders talks about a revolution, except we thought it'd be from the left of the party, not from the center left of the party. <laughs> it was senior voters. It was working class um, folks in the middle of the country. It was suburbanites, college-educated women, and it was African-Americans. That's the revolution we saw. We saw surges in all of those numbers of voters. We've even seen a surge in turnout in some of these early states, in Nevada, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. 
big numbers that actually spell pretty well for Democrats this November. And I think the Biden campaign has been saying, as Amy said, the animating issue in this primary is a a desire to defeat Donald Trump. And I think that they feel like that is the biggest reason why the wind's at their back right now. Did you think that there would be a time when you would say African-American voters have led the way for the establishment, that everyone's following them? Totally. Not to toot my own horn, but I actually wrote it about (laughs) about four months ago. And I know there are a lot of folks, not just African-American. But South Carolina. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Look, African-Americans are the core of the Democratic base, and particularly African-American women are the most reliable Democratic constituency over the past few elections. Senator Harris has reminded us of that time and again, but she didn't get the support enough to stay in the race. This morning she's out there and she is endorsing Joe Biden. Uh, should we expect to see more of her? Totally. And, I, and look, I think obviously <laughs> she is she is a she is a clear candidate for the vice presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, that that folks would kind of make that that grouping, that Biden Harris grouping. But you also have to think about if you're Joe Biden, how do you pull in those Sanders voters if if Bernie Sanders is not the nominee? How do you pull in those folks to make sure that they do not feel ostracized and alienated by the party? Does Kamala Harris do that? Is there another person of color, younger woman candidate who can do that? Maybe there's somebody else out there. Leslie, I want to ask you, you know, uh, Senator Warren, we played that clip of her talking about promising all those young girls and they're going to have to wait another four years. She also said something very specific to gender and how it factored in this race. Let's listen. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, If you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? What did you make of that? We didn't hear this from Senator Klobuchar when she dropped out. No, and I think that's an interesting distinction that you have there. Traditionally, on the road to the White House, there are these unique challenges. There are narrations that they have, kind of frameworks that they have for for male candidates. They're authoritative, the leadership style. It it bolsters kind of their sense of commander-in-chief. For women, in contrary with those similar traits or, or more feminine traits, it's viewed through a different lens. In many ways, sometimes women are categorized as the as ditzy, as a or as somebody who's a media darling. We can never really look at them in a whole in terms of what they represent. So you agree with her? I think there's some legitimacy to that. But look at the, let's look at the distinction. She raised over $100 million. She's coming off the back of a Congress, that, a Democratic Congress, where more women were elected than they had historically, and at the 18 million cracks of Hillary Clinton, who was at the top of the ticket in 2016. So there has been momentum for female candidates. It's hard for candidates, male or female, to face that their policies did not connect with the Asked some of voters who were looking for a nominee, and in this case, to take on Donald Trump. You agree? Yeah, well, and every campaign has to meet the moment, right? And this moment for, I, I like Joel's about the, the revolution of the center, which was <laughs> this was not a time when voters were willing to take a risk, take a risk on a 38-year-old candidate who's openly gay, not willing to take a risk with a candidate, and Elizabeth Warren, who also was seen as as too far to the left, might not be able to beat Donald Trump. And if you talk to strategists, I'm, I'm sure that Dan has heard the same thing. Democratic strategists will tell you, we sat in focus groups where as many women said, I'm worried that a woman can't beat Donald Trump, as did men. Dan, you had an extraordinary week for President Trump, not just because of the coronavirus that we have been talking about. Um, it was not a good week for him in the financial markets. You had the airline industry getting hit hard. Southwest CEO says it has a 9-11-like feel these days. The Federal Reserve stepped in and took extraordinary measures, cutting rates. Is the president losing his best pitch for re-election? Well, we don't know how long this is going to last. Right now, uh, we're in a terrible moment, and, and the sort of the economic carnage that we're beginning to see uh, is going to continue to ripple. I mean, listening to the experts who were on here earlier today, um, we're at the front end of some of this, and it's going to get worse. So uh, in that sense, the biggest issue that has 
he's had going for him is a strong economy, and he now faces a period in which that's not going to be the case. I think the issue is going to be how long does it go on, and what do people think about what was the reason for it and the degree to which he gets the blame as opposed to somebody else. But um, we're going to go through a bad period, and if you are the president of the United States, that's never good politically for you. Margaret, I think the worst thing that happened for the president was his comments at that town hall about Social Security and Medicare. I can tell you, someone who's spoken to a a few folks near the Biden campaign, they saw that as a fastball right down the middle for Joe Biden to start to make his general election case against Donald Trump. It's not the first time he said it, but the fact that he would say that to combine with all the other things that are happening, that's very ominous politically for the president to be talking that openly about Indicating that. potential cuts. Yes. Uh, no, I was going to say, I think the, the president is trying to influence the nation to keep that stiff upper lip, right? To stay informed but not to buy into hysteria as the public sentiment tries to go up. And the reason it's becoming so politicized, which is the unfortunate part, and it's hard, I think, Margaret, what you're trying to do is cipher fact from fiction here, is because there is this lane across the Democratic uh, kind of thinking and what they're saying and their messaging. Is this a failure of the presidential management style just similar to George W. Bush and Hurricane Katrina. Are we falling in that line? And mm-hmm. the president's going to push back and say, I have the task force. We are, you know, aligned working private industry and the federal government. $8.3 billion. That was a joint mm-hmm. Republican-Democrat initiative. That That's where this gets political. And it'll be interesting to see what a new chief of staff at the White House will do <laughs> and what impact he will have. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Washington Governor Jay Inslee, Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.